Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we make the old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and I am very excited to be with you guys here on YouTube tonight. Just to let you know, uh, I was formerly with Valor Studios. Before that, I did this on my own uh, over on Twitch. Now I'm here on YouTube. I'm back on my own. And I'm excited to kick off a new phase of Rolling Bones with you guys here. And who better to kick things off with than one of the uh, luminaries of the uh, the old school movement, one of the minds behind the North Texas RPG convention, one of the best conventions out there, co-host of Talkin' Crit with Eric Tankar, and so much more to all of you lovely people out there. So without further ado, let's welcome Bad Mike Battalato. Mike, welcome to Rolling Bones. Thanks, uh, Ryan. I, I would uh, argue with you about being a luminary, uh, <laughs> but I do ap appreciate the level of respect you showed me, which is something that uh, Eric never shows me on Talking Crit. So uh, I really appreciate you. If this is what the young OSR is all about, I'm, I'm in. I'm in 100%. Respecting your elders goes uh, is way high with me, so that that's awesome, dude. Absolutely. And when it comes to young OSR, uh, I know there, there are a couple other people out there kind of doing... Uh, similar things but at some point ben barsh owes me an appearance on here because he, we were supposed to do that a while back I'm actually trying to get him and his dad on here at the same time no you have to book his hair separately his hair <laughs> has its own agent so that that is going to be a rough one because it's his hair is very demanding um but good luck with that but yeah oh yeah but ben's definitely ben is one of my favorite young dudes so uh, uh definitely get ben on here he is is a, a bright shining light of the young people in the OSR definitely. Hey, if his hair gets his, its hair, own... his, his, his hair is okay. His hair is okay too. I mean, you know. <laughs> if his hair gets its own agent, then uh, I want an agent for my hair. I'll take one for my beard. You're doing too. okay. You're no Ben Barsh, but you are doing all right. I'm going to say right now, you are doing. I give you a thumbs. This is thumbs up. Yeah, Thank definitely. You. Thank you. I need to get on Ben's level apparently, though. Yeah, it's a tough one, you know. But then I also need to reach out to Keelan Halverson because uh, he does some great work uh, as far as like art goes. And I think he'd be a great guest on here. Well, Wonky is awesome. He has uh, been to the last few North Texases and I've got to know him. And I love that kid. He is so enthusiastic about everything and he's very talented. And I mean, there's just nothing not to like about that dude. He, he, uh, Every North Texas, he's like a kid in a candy store. He's like, "Oh my God, this is so cool! It's the coolest ever!" These are all, and he's a, he's just great. He's a he's a great guy. You know, I, uh, one thing I can't stand is uh is as young people being too cool for school. Like, oh man, I'm not gonna get excited about this because you know <laughs> I'm young and cool. But no, Keelan's great. He just he just goes goes nuts, and uh, I, I love the guy. 
Yeah, he, he would be definitely a great pickup for you. Absolutely. Now, uh, we, we need to start this thing off the way that we start off every uh, interview here on Rolling Bones. I got these questions. Oh, take Everyone... my shirt off? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. oh, I'm sorry. I, didn't, I, I haven't seen any before. I didn't know. Okay, I thought, okay. Don't <laughs> we we haven't reached the donation uh, level for taking your shirt off. Um, <laughs> well, it's to keep my shirt on. That's what the donations would be for. So <laughs> you need to learn about making money. That's a money maker, <laughs> let me tell you right now. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, everyone gets asked the same series of questions when they first come on Rolling Bones. So I just got to ask, let's start at the beginning here. Uh, How did you get into role playing in general? Um, I was in high school in 1978 and I had a friend who had moved to Texas from Maryland. And he asked if I heard about this cool game where you could. He noticed I was reading Conan the Barbarian comics. He said, I know a game where you could be Conan the Barbarian. So I'm immediately boom. Oh, because it's, it's got Lord of the Rings stuff in it, too. I'm like, bingo, bingo. You know, I'm like, whoa, okay. And so we went to the local hobby shop, bought a copy of uh, uh, the Holmes Blue Box. Uh, I think we got the Monster Manual. I don't. The, the Dungeon Master Guide was definitely not out. I think the Player's Handbook was out. Maybe not. And uh, back to the house, and he ran a game, and he was terrible, terrible DM. Uh, and he ran in search of the unknown and and i said i think i could do that better joe and so uh next day i ran the game and it was a lot better because i I was and so and that was it Uh, basically every summer through high school was uh we played D &D, because it was texas so it's 150 degrees outside you can't do anything so we would uh in the summer every day we'd go to a friend's house we'd play D D for eight hours and then you know that was my 1978 through 1981 so I was hooked, definitely hooked. But yeah, that that was the beginning. Was uh, some, and the funny thing is, so I still play with Joe, the guy who introduced me. He's, he's actually a doctor now. He's been a doctor for thirty years, and I play with his son, who's a neurosurgeon, and uh, he's in my group now. And he actually comes to the con still. So, um, D is a is a great is a great game. That's that's my evidence. I always use when people say, well, you know, D and D is this. I said, well, look. One of my best friends is a doctor, and his son's a neurosurgeon, and, you know, I, I think he turned out okay. He played D&D, all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, 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 it was a it was a fun fun time because I, I try to think about what I would have done if I had gotten to gaming because anybody that games that much, you realize you just you kill a whole lot of time, you kill a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sometimes I wistfully think about what I would have done with all that time and all that money if I had to play the role-playing games, but, you know. Nah, different life. Who knows? Absolutely. Now, uh, of all the games that you've played, and this can be, you know, an old favorite, a new favorite, your favorite now, uh, one that you always go back to, but if you had to pick a favorite role-playing game and any criteria that you would evaluate a favorite, how would, you know, what would, what game would that be? It would definitely be Dungeons and Dragons. That was the first game I was ever introduced to. That's probably the game I played the most. I've devoted the most time there. I just I love the whole concept of of it. Um, it you know, it's just it's just a cool game, man. It, it's it's a great game. I'll tell you something. So since I started playing D anD D in the late seventies, I'm not a big board game guy anymore. I used to play a lot of war games, a lot of board games. I, I don't necessarily like games where there's winners and losers. I, I, I the one things I love about D anD D is it's a cooperative game. It's it's the ultimate cooperative game. If you don't work together, you're all going to die. And it, it tell it also tells a story. Um, so screw you, Monopoly. You don't do that. Uh, but uh, so I I love that whole concept of it. And I don't think it's any coincidence in the last 
20 years that cooperative board games have been a big thing and they're, they're huge now which is you know you didn't have cooperative board games in the 60s 70s you know and they started really kind of sliding in a little bit in the 90s and now they're huge but I think one of the reasons is because Dungeons and Dragons. It, it made being cooperative cool. It's cool to to be with your friends and fight a monster instead of having to fight against all your friends. You know, it, it's kind of cool when you all team up and you and you go against something. So I I would say D and I really love Call of Cthulhu a lot because I think it's very atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I played it not probably not as much as I would like to. I played it a lot, but uh, definitely D and D is the number one. Gotcha. And it, particular edition, or is D and D just D and D to you? Um, I, I like pretty much anything before the year two thousand. Uh, the group I'm with now, we kind of play a. Uh, we can, you know, you can take anything before two thousand, and you can play it with any version before two thousand. They're all very much interchangeable. Uh, we play kind of a second edition type game. I, I like a lot of what second edition did uh, to first edition, which basically cleaned cleaned up a lot of the. I know a lot of purists are shaking their fists at me right now, but it really did clean up a lot of the um, inconsistencies and issues with first edition. So, uh, and when I got all my friends together to to play our latest group a couple years ago, I asked them what they wanted to play, and I thought they might choose BX because BX is my is one of my other favorite favorite uh, systems. And they're like, no, 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 we all have the books for two E. They just play two E. I'm like, okay, well, that's true. They all had the they still had the rule books. So we ended up, I said, well, there's lots of really cool retro clones out there. Swords of Wizards, this, that. Like, no, no, no. Let's just play 2E. We just we already have all the books. We don't. I was like, okay. So in the new people in the group, we taught them how to play 2E, which is very easy if you played any old school. Uh, that, that's the great thing about pre-2000 games. Any BX, BECMI, even OD&D, first edition, they all just in this little mush. And you can, if you can use an adventure for any one and use it for any other one. And so um, the big stopping point was was 3e in the year 2000 and since then it's been a different kind of uh different kind of game and so uh, anything before 2000 i'll you know we we can play so gotcha gotcha uh amongst those 2e players that you have any any big dark sun fans no actually not uh, which is what and oh what's weird is so tsr started doing its world of the world of the year whatever they call it i don't know when they they had ravenloft and dark sun and planescape and birthright and uh, Spelljammer, and i'm probably missing some there's so many uh um i think they they did themselves a disservice because they divided their audience up they, they weren't getting new people in they were taking their existing audience and dividing it into smaller sections uh we just kind of stayed with AD&D that whole time the group i played with um I did. I did have a lot of friends that that were big Dark Sun players, or and big Planescape was another one. I had a lot of friends who were Planescape players. Um, but I just we just never really drifted that way, and I I don't know a lot of people. My brother is a huge. Uh, he's he likes weird games. My brother's weird anyway, but he likes <laughs> uh, his favorite games are like Spelljammer. He ran an Al Quadim campaign for a while. It was really fun. We had a, we had a blast with that. Al Quadim is a very overlooked setting. That's really really cool. Um, but for the most part, we we just stay with the regular settings. I don't really know a lot of people that play some of that other stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. I I have to ask anytime that comes up because just I'm a huge Dark Sun fan. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to be getting Dark Sun for five E, which kind of sucks. You know, I think that's a good thing. I think Dark Sun is best left as it is. I don't really want to see the the ways that they try to sanitize dark sun 
to, to kind of like your modern right. sensibilities. No, you're, you're not wrong. Yeah, they'll they, they they screwed up Ravenloft. They'll they'll in Dragonlance. They'll screw that one up. Yeah. They'll do so, well. It wouldn't work anyway because they don't allow the the word slave in there any other any of their uh, um, worlds anymore. That's the whole concept really of Dark Sun. You know, mm-hmm. that's a big concept of Dark Sun. So, so I think you're probably safe there. I, don't, I think they won't touch that with a ten foot pole now. So. Now, those of us who spend a good amount of time, you know, in this hobby, playing these games, we, we tend to, you know, develop our own styles of play and, and things that we really like in our games. So when it comes to the games that you run and the games that you like to play in, what, you know, what is it that you look for in those games? Or what is it that you look to provide in games that you run? Um, that's, a, well, that's actually, that's a good question, Ryan. I wish Tankar asked questions that good. He doesn't. Uh, <laughs> Suck it, um, Eric. No, that's a really good question. Yeah, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hammer him all night long because he doesn't know. No, uh, um, no, that's a good question. So I, I I learned a lot from going to conventions. I've been to a lot of conventions, a lot. And I, I knew what I wanted in a convention, what I didn't want by the time we started doing North Texas RPG Con. And one of the things I hate uh, at conventions, and this happened a lot – was I don't like people sitting around not doing anything. I, I don't. There's and people will say like, "Oh, I had a great game, but I got knocked out the first minute of combat, and and then two hours later, you know, I was, you know, we were through." I'm like, "What the hell?" You know, and I, I don't like that. So I like to try to involve everybody in the game, uh, in one way or another. And, and I mean, if somebody, I, I've had games at conventions where people, their player got killed, and I said, "Here, you're running the torchbearer." Or, or you're running the dog. I mean, I'm mean, like you're running the war dog, and they love it. They're like, "Oh, that's so cool." Um, and I, one of my friends, her most memorable game was at a convention. Her character, we were playing BX, and got killed. And I said, "Well, here uh, you're running the torchbearer. You know, Baltus the torchbearer." And she ended up saving the day. It was awesome. I mean, she she didn't get hit the rest of the night, and she killed everything. And she still talks about that game. It was about ten years ago. You know, remember the time I was the torchbearer? I said yes, I remember that time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I like I like everybody involved. I, I, I like um, like a lot of action. I don't like a lot of people go. Man, the best game I ever had was we sat around all night and talked about stuff, and, and we got to this merchant and we like talked. I was like, good lord, boring. No, <laughs> and so I, I always have something happen. There's always something happening. If players are waiting too long here, something's going to attack you. Something's going to happen if you sit around too long and you get involved in this long, you know, I, I don't believe in, in, you know, long sessions at the merchants trying to, okay, we're going to, we're going to um, have these, these jewels and we need to get a lower price. We're, we're going to argue, every, we're going to haggle every single jewel with the jeweler. No, hmm. you're not going to do that because the jeweler will be attacked by a group of goblins and we're, we're, something's going to happen. So, uh, that's what I kind of look at. It's just, it's just always have an action, always have things happening, always get everybody involved. Um, I think humor is very important to games. I don't, I don't think over the top humor necessary, but I, I think you, you, especially if you even have a grim and gritty game, I think a little bit of humor, you know, likes to it, just kind of throw it in there every once in a while. The guys I play with are, over, they're just ridiculous anyway, so they're <laughs> always throwing little t- tidbits in there that make it funny, mm-hmm. and I'll riff off those sometimes, and it'll be even funnier. And so, you know. I, I enjoy humor that ri- arises out of the game. I don't like artificial humor. I like stuff that, like, I'll give you an example. The last, the game I'm running, Highfell, um, they hired these two guys to to run this uh, flying flying creature 
that they found out there was these flying creatures they could use to fly up to Highfell, hmm. and they laid eggs. Oh my gosh, let's start a business where we raise these things. And so they hired these two guys named Ham and Eggs, and that was just funny. That game, you know, there's this Ham, this guy's Eggs, and so Ham and Eggs, and they had so many hilarious. And so I just made these guys absolutely incompetent boobs, and and just the humor rose out of the situations when they'd get back from their adventuring and they'd ask the guys, okay, how did everything go? And I would just on the spot make up something ridiculous, and the players love that. They're like, oh my god, that's you know. So that's the kind of stuff I like, just humor that arises out of the game. Nothing really planned, but just funny things that happen so uh um i don't know if that's really what you asked but that's kind of i guess that's is that the, what you wanted to hear yeah absolutely about my game personally or you yeah. you want to hear about games as a whole in the world i, I can i can riff on that too but uh that's what I, you know my games I, I just like things happening all the time and <laughs> certain systems allow that to happen better than others too um um probably my favorite role-playing games are the Call Cthulhu. Now you'd say, "Oh, there's not a lot of action." Call Cthulhu. Like, what are you talking about? You know, um, Call Cthulhu has a real atmosphere to it, and it, it mm. sometimes nothing happening for a while is better for Call of Cthulhu because that gets everybody really tense and really freaked out. You know, like, okay, nothing's happened for thirty minutes. We're we're gonna get screwed here because something bad's about to happen, which it usually does. Um, yeah, for most most part, I, I like. I like things going on. I, I like uh, I like people interested. I, I remember so many con games where half the table would just be sitting there like this, waiting for the DM and another guy to work out something. I said, nah, I don't, I don't dig that. That's something I don't want in my games. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's an interesting idea or an interesting concept to, to deal with uh, making something happen when really nothing is happening. Like, how, how do you make... It really, in that case, suspense. How do you make uh, a conversation feel like something important? Or how do you make an investigation, which, uh, you know, speaking mechanically, can often drag a little bit. How do you make that suspenseful and make that something that continuously pulls your players deeper and deeper into the, uh, you know, the the story or the, the game that you have unfolding before them? So that's... That is a challenging thing that every GM is going to run into at some point. Something has well, to happen because your players are getting bored, but how do you make that happen? Yeah, Call of Cthulhu does a great job of that, and that's why it's such a great role-playing game. Because sometimes the empty spots are the creepiest parts. You know, you're, okay, I'm researching. There's there's this house in the edge of town. There's something going on there. I want to find out if we can find any clues what's going on there. And then, you you know, of course, you start telling the history of the house and everything. There's all these creepy-ass things happen there. Oh, yeah, some kids disappeared, and they heard them screaming below the house months later, and this and that. Okay, so that's an empty part of the game, but it's it builds attention. You're just like, holy crap, there's some really bad stuff going on at this house. Uh, that's a little harder to do in D&D. Uh, but there are ways. There's still ways to do that. Um, yeah, that, that's and mostly it's, it's just basically letting the people, letting the players know. You know, whatever you're going up against might be worse than you think it is. You know, and so you, when they're marching to the giants' lair, you have them find villages that have been destroyed, and you know, and they run across the body of a 12th level magic user, and he's crushed. Like, holy crap, this guy died. We're not even that high level. Man, we're screwed. You know, so there's things you can do without doing stuff, but. Uh, um, that, that, that's that's how you tell a good DM from a bad DM, really. Because I I know people that just absolutely can't do that. They just they just don't know how to do anything but run the adventure that's in the book the way it's supposed to be, and that's it. So hmm. now 
this next question can be difficult for some people because anyone who dedicates a sufficient amount of their time and energy into this hobby, we have some good memories associated with, with role-playing. But if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Um, it's a tough one. I've just had so much fun over the years. But, um, in 1984, uh, the group that I started with in 1979, uh, we started playing the, the... Back then, they're, back then we're stupid kids. We don't know how to write adventures. We don't know how to do stuff. I, I'm always making people say, oh, yeah, I, I wrote my own adventures. I'm like, how? I, I don't... I, I barely knew how to run them, so I would just run canned adventures. So we ran, you know, Search the Unknown, to Village of Homeless, like that. Well, I started running the Giant series when they got that high level. As you know, there's a there's D1, G2, G3, then they then you go underground. There's D1, D2, D3. There's Q1, Queen of the Spider, and the Dimwit Pits, where you fight Lolf, the Spider Goddess. And uh, we went through that entire series. So they they went through the entire thing. There were these these are characters were first level. Um, over the years, went through G one through two three, D one through three, and then everybody's lives got you know college and Navy and this and that married, and so we would play very sporadically from about 1982 on, and we, we met together. I think it was a holiday weekend in um, 1984, and we finished off uh, Q one, which was the the that so that that was kind of cool because that was the accumulation coming to like. Of you know five years of gaming, albeit all you know with big breaks in between, uh, we had we had a blast in that session. That, they knew that was for all the marbles. I mean, these are your characters. You've been through all this stuff. You're going up against Loth. It's, it's just you know if you have anything saved, you might as well use it now. I mean, yeah. there's no point in keeping stuff back. And that, that was fun. We had a, we had a blast that weekend. Um, uh, other than that, just uh, I've had some really fun sessions in North Texas. I, I run a. Now, I haven't run this for the past couple of years, but ever since COVID. But I, I usually run a session of B one and Search for the Unknown uh, for with using the BX rules, um, which I may use OSC next time because I, I mean we'll see about that. But I've had some hilarious. I mean I've had some just great time. We've had some great groups. No two groups are ever the same. Um, Change the the kind of the plot line of every time I run it into where there's a different bad guy that's kind of running. The search the unknown. If, if those aren't familiar with it, be one to search the unknown. Basically, just gives you this big empty two-level castle, and you're supposed to put all the monsters and treasure in there. It's, it was a beginning. It was a kind of a beginning adventure. So I have about five or six different versions that I have all fleshed out. They each have a, kind of a different baddie that's running the place. Mm-hmm. So I let the players beforehand like, okay, which one do you want to do? You want to do the undead one? You want to do the bandit one? <laughs> you want to do the orc one? Whatever. Like, okay, we'll do this one. And then I have a mystery one. You want to do the mystery one? Oh, we don't know what that is. Yeah, we'll do the mystery one. Um, so no two games are ever the same because it's different players. But I've had some players play more than once. And we have had some absolutely hilarious happenings or just some crazy things happen. So it's hard to pick just one session. But those, those were all the B1 games. Everyone was pretty memorable. I, I had a, a two B, a 1B1 game where Arrow Otis played, which was awesome. Nice. That was like... Yeah, that was... So the story with that was I, I get a my game had filled up and I get an email from Errol and it's like hey I just noticed that uh, you're, uh I, really, I really wanted to play in your game and I noticed it was full I was wondering if I could like possibly sit down and take a space and I was like hell no I'm like, screw you Errol I don't know who you are and I was like oh my god yeah uh, you want to kick somebody else out I'll kick you no but uh, yeah I was like yes of course you can come Errol and so. Just that was kind of great. So we all came in there, and he's just sitting down there, and people are walking in, and kind of like, 
guy. And so, you know, at the beginning, I introduced her like this is Daryl Otis, everybody. I mean, he looks like an accountant. He doesn't look yeah. like I play DD or draw the crazy art he draws. He just looks like a regular dude. And so, that was a fun session, actually. We had a pretty fun time. Uh, ben, ben Barsh played in that game, as a matter of fact. That was, <laughs> that was fun. But, um, so, that's been cool. And he actually played again. He played again yeah. a few years later. Uh, he had he he had nothing to do, and so he's like, "Oh, got another space for us?" Like, "Yep, come on in, Earl. Bring up bring up a a chair." Uh, yeah, what one? It's so hard after all these years. I mean, I'm almost sixty years old just to think of one session that was that great. Those are probably some of my best memories. My original group, and then uh, uh, just some of the stuff that I've run into in North Texas. You know, we've we've, uh, we've had a blast over the years. Uh, they just kind of all blended together too. Hmm. After a while, when you get old enough. You start saying, did that happen in 2012, or was that 2015, <laughs> or was it 2009? And um, so it's kind of tough to, to separate your sessions when you get older. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, last of these introductory questions here, and then we'll dig into some stuff that's kind of specific to uh, to you and your work. Uh, and I'll tell you, the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. But Bad Mike, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Anything on a t-shirt? Well, nowadays you can put anything on a t-shirt. So uh, that's uh, what have I put on? It? What haven't I put on a t-shirt? Um, I can put anything on a t-shirt. It's a weird question because you can put anything on a t-shirt. So. Hmm. I think of it, I'll let you know, and I'll put it on a T-shirt. And I'll wear it. Uh, some some of the T-shirts I've done for North Texas have been funny. Uh, we we have a midnight auction, which is kind of a funny thing at the end of the convention that we just blow off steam and it gets really risque sometimes. But I've had some pretty funny T-shirts for that. I I, I can't repeat some of the, some of them on the air. Um, I, I'll, so tell you, some... I'll tell you. I'll tell you because you mentioned the midnight auction. You as the devil was almost in the thumbnail for the stream. Uh, that that would probably be a better. Probably people might recognize me more if, <laughs> if I had the devil horns and a, a cape or something. So that's not too off. Uh, I, I had I've had some pretty funny shirts over the years in the in the uh, midnight auction. And that it would probably be something I put on a midnight auction shirt that I just can't remember right now that. Was pretty. That was hilarious. That that I thought was hilarious, and somebody, and then somebody probably paid too much money to buy it. Because <laughs> um, I mean, half the bid on auctions is, is tricking people out of their money. What can mm-hmm. I say? You know, make them spend money on uh, goofy things. So the, the, this year, I sold I sold souls. I had a little sheet of paper that said, "I own. I'm Satan, and I own the soul of." And I filled in the blank. And so I was basically holding up these pieces of paper, and people were giving me a hundred dollars for a piece of paper. <laughs> That said, that said, this was uh, Tom Tullis's soul, or you know, uh, Alex Kamer's soul. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a money making extravaganza. Now, I felt for one minute, I felt like uh, old school TV evangelists. You know how they felt when they were up there just fleecing people out of their money. Um, so I can't really answer your question. I wish I could, but I, I, like I said, if I think of that one thing I want a T-shirt, I'll put it on a T-shirt and wear it then. And I'll say, this is what Ryan got me thinking about. And I decided to put this on the t-shirt. But it hasn't happened yet. Whatever one of the t-shirts hasn't happened, it'll happen eventually. All right. Well, based on what you said, I will design a t-shirt for you right now. So. <laughs> I'll wear it, man. Come it'll on. be, it'll be Jimmy Swigert's face from when he, 
<laughs> from, from from when he said, "Oh, I've sinned." That that specific uh, face when he was confessing to his infidelity, and he'll have the the North Texas devil horns. <laughs> And instead of his hand like being it. open, it'll have a piece of paper in it. And at the top of that piece of paper, it will say, good for one soul. And at the bottom, it'll say Levi Combs. Oh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't sell Levi's soul. I, I, that's, I'll probably next year. We'll work on Levi's next year. I mean, I only have so, many, so much time to sell these souls, and I have pretty much everybody's soul available. So it was, you know, so, and also, I would also say why this person sold their soul to me. So, like Ben Barsh. Uh, he'd sold his soul for perfect hair, obviously. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, sold, so I sold his soul. So every every everything had a meaning. So I I'll think of something. I, I don't know what Levi has sold his soul for yet. I'll maybe that beautiful beard he has. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> to see about that. It's not talent because he's the guy's. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. He, he, the guy is incredibly talented, actually. Absolutely. Now, um, one thing that we talked about before. Uh, coming on the air here. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to lead with this because we left it open uh, as the show was starting. You mentioned that you had some theories and, and some reactions to uh, the, the recent Dungeons & Dragons movie trailer. So uh, let's start with your thoughts on that and then kind of move into the, the theories that you have uh, coming out of that and how it's going to impact... I guess the the five E uh, movement as a whole, and then uh, you know gaming as a whole. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull you in here, just like yeah. the Godfather, just like Michael <laughs> Corleone got pulled back in, um, because this got. I was thinking about this because uh, your last uh, um, recording, uh, which I watched before the show, I actually did some homework, not a lot of homework, but it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you talked about how you think there's going to be a drop off in old school. Type stuff because of the the new wave of, of media coming out is not going to be very popular. And you mentioned um, new Game of Thrones, the new uh, the Rings of Power, um, and then you also mentioned the D and D movie about how you don't think they're going to do very good, and so this is going to be kind of a drop off. And uh, I was saying I, I saw so I saw the D and D trailer, and I thought I looked at that and said if this doesn't this looks plays like it looks this is a blockbuster, and they're going to make a lot of money. And D and D is going to do very well off off the you know off this because I, I think that is I, while watching it I thought it was very very professional which is people who like D and D media are not used to because most D and D media sucks and and I'll include the original D and D cartoon in that I thought it sucked I thought it's terrible now I wasn't the target audience I mean I was a I was in my twenties in the eighties so I thought the D and D cartoon was awful and I thought the um, obviously, the movies that come before have been really terrible. The the best D and D movies have been movies that weren't D and D movies, like for instance, like Conan the Destroyer, which is a yeah. which is a great, and probably not the best fantasy movie, but it's a great. Hey, here's a team. We're all going to get together and go do something, and you know something happens. It was. It's no no um, secret. It was written by two comic book uh, writers, Harry um, Thomas and uh, Jerry Conway. Mm-hmm. So of course it's you know it's good. It's really good. They're good good writers too. Um, oh, if I'm wrong, please call me. I think it was Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway that wrote the wrote the Code of the Destroyer. But uh, that sounds right. Roy we, Thomas we wrote. We wrote almost all the yeah. He wrote yeah. almost all the run of Conan, the best the best run of Conan. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jerry's Jerry's been writing. He wrote some of the best Spider Man. Of course, he wrote uh, CS uh, CSI uh, Law and Order for years and years too. So he's yeah. an incredible writer. Um, 
but there hasn't been there hasn't really been any good fantasy to compare it to, especially anything with the names D and D on the on the cover. It's because uh, people who do D and D don't really know what they're doing, and that that's one of the problems with that was one of the problems with comic book movies for a long time. That's why the MCU has been such an incredible blockbuster moneymaker. It was the first time ever you had actual comic book fans writing stories and respecting the characters. And not saying, we're going to make this a joke because we make everything a joke we don't understand. Um, even going back to the old Batman movies, which were, you know, Batman, the, the old Michael Keaton stuff, were okay and everything, but they were still, they didn't respect the material. It, it was, it was you know, it was goofball. It was it was still silly. Um, the MCU was, a, was when fans finally said, we're going to make the movie we wanted to see. And I think that might be the case with the D&D movie coming. I think, I think it might be people who actually know D&D making a movie that they might want to see, actually. Instead of just saying, here, we're going to just go throw all this shit in there because we don't really, we don't really know what D&D is. We don't care. And I, th- I think the beginning of this was Critical Role. I think Critical Role paved the way for this. As much as I really don't care about Critical Role because I don't like to watch people play D&D, <laughs> um, it paved the way for we're going to have this uh, party of adventures and, and they're going to be wisecracking balls and they're gonna and, and you're it's gonna be like a soap opera. You're gonna follow it and love it because you love these characters. And I think that's it. Looked to me like D D movies kind of grabbing that zeitgeist a little bit. Like, hey, we're gonna make this like Critical Role. It's gonna be we're gonna respect the material. Yes, there's gonna be humor in it, but there's also gonna be adventure. We're gonna have name actors. We're gonna have Michelle Rodriguez. We're gonna have Chris Pines. We're not gonna have you know goofballs that nobody really cares about. Um, uh, that was my opinion of it. I think I think it's going to do very well based on the trailer. Now, will hardcore D and D people like it? They don't care, and, and I mean they shouldn't care because that's a teensy tiny bit of their audience. Mm-hmm. Audience is everybody else out there. It's my wife. It's you know my grandkids. It's people maybe don't play D and D. That's who their main audience is. The same way with the with the Tolkien movies. I remember when um, um, Lord of the Rings uh, was coming out. There was people, friend, good friends of mine, their Tolkien fans that just detested the trailers. They saw the trailers for first movie and said, this is going to be suck. This is terrible. This is awful. They don't have Tom Bombadil. They do this wrong, this and that. I am not going to see this travesty. It sucks. Well, you know what? No one cared what they wanted. They and they still don't. They don't care what hardcore Tolkien lovers or scholars did. They wanted to show that, yeah, if you like Tolkien, you go see it, but they wanted to show that everybody would want to see. And the fact that the movie won the third movie won an Academy Award means they succeeded. They got people outside the realm of fantasy and outside the realm of Tolkien to respect what they were doing, which was a great adventure, you know, series of adventure, a, a, a mythical series of adventures, one of the greatest adventures ever written in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. They got them to respect that. And so uh, now I'm not putting D and D in that category. Obviously, it's just going to be a, a fun summer film. But um, I, I saw that and thought, you know. Seems to be exactly what they need there to get people interested. Oh, you felt differently. Are you, you saw the trailer too? What did you think? So, um, one thing I want to clarify: uh, I don't think there's going to be any kind of drop off as far as the OSR goes. I think we're actually going to be fine because we're going to end up being one of the few places where people who want a fantasy fix can go. Because, you know, and I say this as one of the youngest people in in the OSR, uh, OSR players have been playing for forever. 
and will continue to play and will continue to play the games they love and continue to, you know, offer that to people. We are, you know, just because everyone else's 5e game or everyone else's Pathfinder game ended, you know, our, our games are still going on. You guys can come over here and join us if you want to. Um, but with that said, what I'm seeing from, uh, House of the Dragons, the, the new Game of Thrones, uh, attempt to farm the IP further, and what I'm seeing from Rings of Power are two intellectual properties that are being used essentially as farmland. And uh, even though the specifics might not have been all there with the original uh, Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy, the spirit of Tolkien was very much alive in uh, those movies, which, you know, my, my wife is a tremendous Tolkien fan. I'm more of the Appendix N type fantasy. I'm more of a, a Robert E. Howard fan. Uh, those of you out there who have watched the show forever know why. But uh, I'm a Robert E. Howard fan. Anyway, uh, I don't see that same reverence for the spirit of what Tolkien uh, wanted to do with his stories in The Rings of Power. I see a giant corporation uh, basically... Uh, strip mining some of Tolkien's uh, like outside of Lord of the Ring, outside of the proper trilogy work. They are making something to make something and a lot of people are seeing through it and a lot of the uh, talk around Rings of Power is very negative and no one's talking about House of Dragons. Now what that leads me to is the Dungeons and Dragons trailer and I saw it and I think it'll be a perfectly serviceable, watchable, consumable product. It'll be two hours and five minutes of entertainment that your general audience is going to go, yeah, that was fine. And then an hour later, they're not going to think about it ever again. And uh, the might, D&D crowd... Walk out of oh, sorry, go ahead. I say, but they might walk out of that movie wanting to go to the store and buy a D and D game. I think that's a big thing about the D and D movie. You have to realize too, it's not just a. It doesn't have to be that great a movie. All it has to do is, is maybe send one fourth of the people there to the store looking for a Dungeons and Dragons game. It might, but I think a lot of that is also going to fall on how critics react to it and how you know, that general early reception to the movie goes. If critics are going, it's a Marvel movie, but with, uh, like, dragons, I think a lot of people are going to give it a skip because we're seeing at this point uh, Thor Love and Thunder is the canary in the coal mine for Marvel right now. That movie's not doing well, or at least not doing as well as they wanted it to. And I think because people it sucks, Ryan. It <laughs> sucks. I haven't no, seen it. And I and I'm someone who used to go to see every Marvel movie, not just in theaters, but opening night. So, uh, you know, for me, not watching it, and I haven't watched Marvel anything in quite some time. That should tell you a little something about where I think the MCU is going. But that movie is not performing well, and I think. Audiences are getting tired of the uh, 
jokes every five minutes, giant CGI spectacle, uh, here's everything at you all at once, uh, breakneck pace movie uh, with no substance and no uh, grit or seriousness to it. Think about The Batman and how well that movie did and how completely different from all the other superhero movies that have come out uh, just in the past few years, that one movie was. It was a slow burn, three hour uh, neo-noir movie that just so happened to have Batman characters in it. And it made, I think it made a billion dollars. I'm, I'm pretty sure it hit, you know, those numbers that studios are expecting the Marvel movies aren't doing that anymore. And if this movie reminds people of a Marvel movie a year after Thor Love and Thunder, a year after what I think is going to be a lot of people's breaking point for the MCU, I think a lot of people are going to give it a pass. And so if the casual audience isn't going to see it, uh, the the hardcore audience, the D&D fans, their tickets are already sold. Whether they think it's going to be good or they think it's going to be bad, whether they're there to enjoy it or they're there to, uh, to hate watch it. Those tickets are sold, but I don't think there's enough to make this stand out as something that the casual fans can't miss. It's not going to be the cinematic event that everyone, uh, wants it to be. And if it's not, if it fizzles, then a lot of the, mainstream perception of fantasy with what'll end up being at that point three uh big budget fantasy disappointments they're gonna say all right fantasy is damaged goods it's not gonna sell and the casuals are gonna go it's boring and what that leaves us with is this giant void of no one's making fantasy content anymore and so it's gonna be on people outside of that big machine, people outside of Hasbro, uh, people outside of Hollywood to pick up that banner and say, no, fantasy can be that, but it can also be this. And we can point them towards stuff that's got kind of the flavor of traditional Tolkien or Fritz Leiber or Robert E. Howard or Clark Ashton Smith. We can, you know, run OSE games for them. We can run DCC, we can run, uh, you know, BX or Swords and Wizardry for them. Uh, we can get them to read those old books. We can get them to read Paul Anderson. That's a pipe dream, but we, we might be able to do it. Okay, I'm going to cover all your points here. Okay. Great, well, great, all great points. I wish Eric was this intelligent and verbose, but, you know, I, I work <laughs> with what I got. So. Um, talking create Wednesday nights, 7 or 8 central. Um, so, so... First part about the shows I agree with. And so Hollywood always has a problem, and, and we all know this, is that once something's a success, once diehard's success, you have 18 diehard movies, or yeah. all you know different plays, and rarely do any of them succeed, but they get in people who are like, oh, it's like diehard. The same thing is going on right now with fantasy. All, all that's ever succeeded was Game of Thrones and um, Tolkien, Lord yeah. of the Rings. So now everything has to look like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings because producers won't take a chance on anything else. They're, they're going to say, oh, no, 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 I, I, I'm not taking a chance on that because that, that's not Tolkien or Lord of the Rings. So that's why you have a really, really shitty um, Tolkien, Tolkien yeah. 
sidebar, which really has, and they've already said they don't have the rights to anything, mm-hmm. so they're just going to present this generic fantasy story with hobbits and elves, and it's going to have all the same names, but it's really not going to have any Tolkien feel to it at all. It, 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 I mean, that's just it's designed not to. It looks like that there's just too many there's too many cooks in the making the menu and they're making the soup. It's that thing is going to be a mess. Um, it still could be popular. I, I don't know, but it just doesn't. I mean, depending on how good the CGI is, and, and they're spending a lot of money per episode, it could look great. If it looks great, that'll bring in some people no matter what. Or the um, dragon one. Now that's a sad story because um, that's a I mean, it's a really good story. Unfortunately. The fat man George Martin can't write faster than he'd eat cheeseburgers, and so we're stuck here. We still, thirty years after the, I mean, people don't realize this. This series started thirty years ago. Thirty mm-hmm. years ago, this dude still hasn't finished it. You know, I, I think uh, you know, there's there's authors that have written. Michael Conley, the the uh, detective story writer, has written thirty books in the last thirty years, and George Martin can't write five. But anyway, so I think if they'd have finished, if he'd actually finished series because what happened was very famously for those oh the first five seasons are great season six was iffy and that's when george said well i don't have any material written past here so here's what i kind of want to happen and that just shows you how terrible hollywood is because they're like i I don't know and they just got awful and the last season was just a disaster because they had no clue what to do that they had been going along uh george's um you know Going along and following his novels, once there was no novels left to follow, they did the typical Hollywood thing, and they just absolutely screwed the pooch on that one. So, so I think if that had finished stronger, I think there'd be a lot more interest in this in this dragons. Um, as it is, it's, it's known as one of the worst seasons ever and one of the worst finales ever. So, um, virtually no one talks about Game of Thrones anymore, which is which is insane. It, it, it got lost it. For those who don't know, Lost had a really bad kind of frontal season. It was great, and then the last season was terrible, so nobody talks about Lost anymore, which is a really good show up until the last season. And the same thing with Game of Thrones. So, Hollywood is to blame for that because they don't know what to do. They have no imagination. Now, here's why I think that D&D will avoid that problem. We have no expectations, Ryan. The, I tell you what, the expert, you know where our expect, okay, so the expectations for, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings might be here, for Game of Thrones, maybe it's here. D&D, it's here, because the, everything that's had the D&D name on it since it has been garbage. I mean, a lot of it was straight to video. That's how bad it was. Yeah. So I think the expectations are going to be totally different for that, and that if it's even somewhat good, it may blow up, because people are going to say, you know, this is kind of a fun little campy movie doesn't take itself seriously it's not like because you know game of thrones is going to take itself absolutely super seriously the 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 rings of power is going to be over the top taking itself seriously it's going to be garbage you know that's what's going to be garbage i don't think the DD movie will be there as long as there's some stakes involved you know i think it'd be cool if they killed somebody one of the main characters that'd be kind of cool because that's very dnd ish just you know somebody dies and um, if they if they play it straight and and don't get too goofball humor, I think they've got a real good chance with the um, with that movie blowing up more than they thought it would. You know, being better than it was because they're like, wow, uh, people didn't expect anything. <laughs> they they thought it was going to be this. Now, relating that to the MCU, so problem with the MCU is um, the first movies they made all had a very strict game plan how they came about. Um, I remember the uh, 
felt I can't remember the names of the people, but they had they had an entire written Bible for that first yeah. for the bar, phase one, two, three, whatever. They have no effing clue what they're doing right now. They're just throwing things out here. We need a Doctor Strange movie and this and that, whatever. That's the reason the MCU is basically just wallowing. Um, they also fell into the since there's nothing at stake in these movies, they become these giggle laugh fests like mm-hmm. Thor: Love and Thunder, which is terrible. It's just, it's just, it's just goofy, and um, they have no respect for the material. The heroes are made fun of, and 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 also they have committed themselves to developing these very. So the the first movies they did really covered everything. So if you look at the Marvel universe, you have Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the Avengers. Um, you've got Fantastic Four and X-Men, but of course that's a different story because they were owned by a different studio. They couldn't do any FF or X-Men. But they own those. So I'm thinking until they do an FF movie and an X-Men movie, we're going to see garbage, garbage, garbage. Because you have all these second-tier characters. And apologies if any of these are your favorite character, but Miss Marvel is not a showstopper. Moon Knight, Hawkeye, these are all very much D-list. Shang-Chi... Um, and that's what they have to work with in, in, in Phase 4 because they can't do what, what they have left, which is basically Fantastic Four and X-Men. They, they're, they're still working on those movies. So until that happens, you're going to see some bunch of really bad stuff. Now, once again, we're talking about expectations here. People expect the Marvel movies to be good like they used to be, and they're not. I don't think they expect that of the D&D movie. I, I just don't think you have those kind of ex- expectations there. Well, and to, to address... Um... The, the point you made about audiences uh, w- with their expectations, I I think it being, I think the perception of it being kind of a lighthearted, campy, fun romp is going to hurt it in the long run because we've had so many of those. We've had two Guardians of the Galaxy movies with a third on the way. We've had... Uh, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. This movie very much reminds me of a James Gunn movie, which is why I'm bringing those up, uh, and, and the superhero movies specifically that he's made. We, we have, we've had no shortage of lighthearted adventure movies with ensemble casts uh, where the, the quips and the uh, CGI explosions fly at a million miles an hour, and I think people are sick of it, which is why I... Are, are they sick of buddy cop, buddy cop movies? We still have buddy cop movies. Well, and buddy cop movies do okay. I mean, they're not, yeah, they're maybe not blockbusters, but there's certain concepts people really enjoy, and they will come back and see those. Like I said, a buddy cop movie. I don't think I can watch another buddy cop movie for as long as I live. They still make buddy cop movies. Why? Because they make money. They wouldn't make them if they didn't make money. Well, but the, those movies, the, the reason that particular genre uh, stays around is because it resonates with people on a level deeper than the story that's being told. It's, you know, cause when you get down to it, all of those movies are the interplay between a person and a coworker. And everyone knows what it's like to be forced to work with a coworker that they don't necessarily get along with, or they initially butt right, heads right. with. So there's something very honest and very human in that story for people to latch on to. There's nothing to latch on to in big CGI explosion movies because there's nothing of substance there. It's just, right, right. it's it's there for you to, it, there's a reason why they call them popcorn movies. It's there for you to go, that's cool looking, and shovel popcorn in your face, and then not think about it an hour later. Oh, look at the, look at the um, Furious, Fast and Furious movies. I mean, they're pretty much terrible, 
but they will make a billion dollars every time they come out. Why? Because there's something in that people people love to see a group of of wacky misfits get together and pull off a job, and there's complications, and there's a kind of a crappy love story shoved in there, and there's a bunch of fists flying, and there's fast cars, and they like that genre. So <laughs> I, I agree that certain I mean certain genres always bring people in no matter how terrible it is. But I just think that this that, and, and, I, and I'll even throw two other things in there too the sort of Shannara series which I think failed miserably they've already cancelled I believe <laughs> and then the the Wheel of Time which very mixed reviews on the first season um, I heard a lot more negative than I heard positive so that kind of helps your side that made people get burnt out on fantasy I just think those were really well really crappily done and that's the whole thing is if it all goes back to the soul of a soul of a franchise. Mm-hmm. If you're, and that's why superhero movies, superhero movies, Ryan, I don't know how old you are, but they failed so miserably for years and decades and years because nobody that made a superhero movie uh, respected the concept, and they failed so incredibly that that's why you have stuff like at one point Marvel Comics sold. Captain America movie to an Italian guy. Oh yeah, I've seen was, that movie. Was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, impressive, huh? Um, yeah. <laughs> so so bad because they didn't. They absolutely. If you uh, listen to Jim Shooter talk about his days at Marvel, they thought that those product that their the products were worthless, mm-hmm. worthless. And yet, if you look at the top ten movie grosses of all time, you have Avengers, Avengers Two. I mean, all, because they were finally were being done by people who respect the material. People didn't respect the material. I think the same thing with the D&D, with the fantasy right now is you have a lot of people that are doing it that don't respect the material. If you can say all kinds of things you want about the um, director of the original uh, uh, Tolkien trilogy and then uh, Hobbit, uh, what am I Peter Jackson, right? Peter Jackson, uh, he respected the material, he and did. you can say anything you want about yeah he did this wrong, did this that. He loved the material, respected the material. He fought for the material. He made. He made these giant six-hour movies that I still watch because I like the uncut versions because he just loved the material so much. The people that are doing this Phase 4 Marvel don't care about these characters. They don't care <laughs> about the movies. Takeda Watita or whatever, he doesn't care about Thor. He de- I mean, he, does, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and the same thing I think you're going to find out pretty quickly if the showrunners for Rings of Power care about the material in Tolkien. Which I don't think they do. I think you're right on that, Ryan, because I I've read the interviews and I'm just like, oy vey. <laughs> These guys have no clue what they're talking about. And the same with the dragons. Now, there's one thing going with the um, the Game of Thrones uh, 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 prequel is that it's all material. The material was all written by George Martin and all finished. He mm. he could die now, and that's all. It's done. So. They might not have the problem of having to think for themselves, which I think screwed up the uh, earlier Game of Thrones. They actually had to think for themselves, and they had no thoughts in their head. Um, that might that might be a sleeper hit, because I think, once again, that's low expectations. People are like, yeah, the last one ended on such a bummer, it sucked. You know, I, I really don't care about this. Um, it could be better than we think it is. Um, I just still think that D.D. falls in that Netherlands of, like, you know, it's not... Like, for instance, Conan. Nobody likes most of the Conan movies, because... First of all, they've never used a Robert E. Howard story, which is unthinkable. In my, I just think that blows my mind. Yeah. He wrote so many great stories. I mean, all you have to do is walk in there and say, uh, "Beyond the, I need a screenplay for Conan." Throw down "Beyond the Black River," and boom, there you go. I mean, you don't even have to, you know, why even think this? Or, you know, "Phoenix on the Sword," boom, or what? You know, that's all you have to do. Conan the Conqueror, boom, and they won't do it. They're so like, no, let's just make a generic movie and we'll slap Conan's name on there. That has nothing to Conan. 
that's why they fail because yeah. Conan fans know. But I think deeper than that, I think fans they they if you go how many times have you ever gone to a movie ride and you're about an hour in and you realize that people didn't care about this movie made it you can do that I mean I do that I, I've had that feeling within the first fifteen minutes of a movie. I, I I think I might have the first five. I thought it was exactly what you're talking about. And you'll be watching it going, these people, they don't care about whatever whatever genre this is. They don't care about it. They don't know about it. And I'm going to sit here anyway, but it's I can tell they don't know what they're doing. Right. Um, we'll, we'll be able to see pretty quick, I think, whether or not these people understand the genre or know the genre. And so I think it's hard to fool people now. It's hard to fool people nowadays. It's the internet and different uh, – we have more communication with people. It, it was easier back in the day. I remember seeing the first Conan movie, and I was a huge Conan fan. It disappointed me, but all my friends loved it because they didn't know anything about Conan. They just thought it was cool. And I'm hmm. like, yeah, but it's really not one Conan story, and, and Arnie's really not Conan. Conan was, was like a tiger. He was a panther. He was, yeah. you know, he was, and he wasn't this big muscle-bound guy. But over the years, I've become to appreciate it. I mean, it's a, it's a good movie in its own right, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a Conan movie. It's just a, it's a really right. good fantasy movie with Conan's name slapped on there. And that's about it. There's, there's no, there's no really connection to, to the Conan universe to me. Hmm. Um, I think in this case, at least, they'll go back to the D&D movie. But what I saw in the preview, and by having, instance, an owl bear in there and a mimic and stuff, I think they're not saying this is a generic fantasy movie with D&D slapped on there. I, I like the fact they're using some D&D monsters, D&D specific monsters that you and I would recognize. And say, oh. Somebody actually picked up a book and looked at it and saw there was a mimic. Wow, or or a or a owlbear. That's new because they usually don't care. It's not just going to be a, a a generic fantasy movie with Dungeon Dragons slapped on there. And I think they've also like once again we'll know in the first fifteen minutes, right? We'll be watching yeah. this going, yeah, these guys don't care. But I think um, the whole critical role thing, I I think that's how this movie got made because. <laughs> I remember how much those guys made in their Kickstarter, the Critical yeah. Role guys. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, in Hollywood, I'm probably their heads exploded. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, look at these idiots over here. <laughs> they're doing their stupid thing, and they're going to do a Kickstarter. Yeah, whatever. And they made so much money that people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. people do actually care about this D and D stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that had a big um, hand in getting the D and D movie made at this point. Yeah, and. This will be kind of the last thing I say on this, and then I want to address some of the points brought up in chat here. Um, I think they saw the success of Critical Role, and I think they've made a cheap imitation of what they think Critical Role is. I I think this is a pretty cynical... I, I do think this is going to be just a, a consumer product. Even with the, the monsters that are there... Uh, I could easily see that, or I could easily see someone at Hasbro uh, sending over some art to a storyboard artist and then being like, oh, that looks cool. But, you know, it's at this point, it's just what I saw versus what you saw, and we won't know until this thing's actually in theaters and we're able to react to what the full movie is in its entirety. Let's look at the worst possible thing that could happen. You're right. It sucks, and they stop making fantasy movies. Is that a bad thing? No, that's not a terrible thing. No, because I think we need a reset on fantasy movies. I think you're right too. I, I I'd like to have a reset on superhero movies too. To be honest with you. Oh yeah. I, I'm I'm happy they're failing. I I am like you. I saw every Marvel movie that came out. I have not seen Doctor Strange yet. I have not seen Thor yet. I mean, I, I've just watched 
horror uh, clips from clips on YouTube. I'm like, yeah, this is bad. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm hoping they do a reset on all that stuff, which would be great. Hmm. It's not the worst thing that could happen. So it fails, yeah. eh, you know. Hmm. Now, uh, Mark Gutzinger in, in chat here. Um, as far as The Witcher and Dark Crystal, I think Dark Crystal, I've not seen the Dark Crystal series, but I think that is too niche to have any kind of like big impact on popular perception of fantasy. And The Witcher is a disaster. Uh, <laughs> both from a me being a big fan of The Witcher and not liking it, and from popular perception. The, wit- the, the public reaction to the first season of The Witcher was, what happened? I didn't mind The Witcher because I'm not familiar with the books. And I, I may have played one of the video games one time, so I'm not that invested in it. But that's probably how you felt about The Witcher is how I feel about Conan properties now. Because yeah. I'm like, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't think it was terrible. I, thought, I liked the look of The Witcher. I, I don't think it's that popular, is it? I mean, does it's not... The, the video games popular. are incredibly popular. Right. Uh, the, the books are less popular because they're foreign and any, anything that's foreign is going to have a big uh, hill to, to overcome when it comes to just, you know, being translated faithfully and people, you know, seeing that and, and appreciating it for the differences from the thing they're familiar with. But the, and, and that was just the first season. I've heard nothing but negative reactions to season two because they basically said, hey, you know how everyone's favorite part of season one was the fact that Henry Cavill was a badass? He's barely in season two. <laughs> it's, it's it's not terrible, but like I said, I don't have anything refer. I don't know that much about the witch's history, so I'm just looking at it as a, it's, a, it's a fantasy story about you know, this badass dude. You know, I, I kind of like his character and like his... I probably like the books better, or the or the games better, even. Hmm. Um, I, I just think that falls under a lot of people's radar because it's not. I mean, it's not as well known even as Wheel of Time or Sword of Shannara, um, even really Dark Crystal. I mean, Dark Crystal. I know there's some hardcore fans, but let's face it, they haven't done anything with that property in what thirty years, twenty years. Hmm. I mean, so I kind of slid under a lot of people's radar too. I haven't seen it, and and I'm not that. From, I don't even remember the first the movie. I don't really remember it, but. Um, I think in those cases you're a little got a little more leeway because you're just not quite as much a household name, um, and and a lot of times I'm looking at, at a look like I can tell stuff's cheap, you know. Um, I I know this sounds terrible, and and I'm not going to besmirch Star Trek because I already already threw Doctor Who under the bus. And oh, I got we can do that again. Hammered, I'll back that bus up. Hammered on Facebook. <laughs> hammered on Facebook. It's hard for me to watch an original series episode of Star Trek now because it's so cheap, mm-hmm. and I can just see it now. I'm kind of like, this is a starship in 200 years from now, and it's got all it's got is little blinking lights. I'm like, it's okay, calm down. It was made in the 60s, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the a lot of times the look, like the look of the Witcher. I love the look of the Witcher. I think it looks great. Um, you know, the stories. Like I said, I don't know how. Apparently, according to you, they're not really that. At um, respectful to the original material so yes that would definitely bother me like most of our robert e howard movies any any property his bothers me because they ever they don't actually read a robert e howard story before they write the script so uh, right and um, and i'll say it again just to annoy everyone out there in uh, all the boneheads out there who've heard me say this a million times 
uh, but you've not heard this. So I'll tell you, I'm a relative of Robert E. Howard. The the Howard, my, my last name being Howard is not a coincidence. Uh, he is a distant cousin. And have you ever been to the house? We went to the house this I, summer. It's I not, it's cool. Want nothing Very more cool. than to go to Cross Plains and see that house. Awesome. I just haven't made it happen yet. Very awesome. It's an amazing experience. And to to answer uh, Mark's other points that he made here, uh, do you think the D and D movie would have originally been a Dritz movie until the Drow got canceled? I think they should have made just a straight up adaptation of the crystal shard and done the full Icewind Dale trilogy. I think that would have been a better move as far as introducing people to these interesting and very fleshed out characters that Salvatore uh, created and then introducing them to the, the world of D and D to the, the forgotten realms and uh, you know, all the, the world in that uh, in that setting through these characters and that way you again get the hardcore fans in immediately because they know these characters but you also have recognizable archetypes and uh you know characters that basically already come with some kind of story to tell that you can then latch on to change where you might want to change things and then just amplify that to a wider audience because, you know, my dad, my dad does not know anything about D&D. He has read at least one of R.A. Salvatore's D&D books. Oh, they sold, yeah, they, they were on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. So, but I, I, I'm of two minds this because I, I always thought a good starting point would be the Dragonlance trilogy. Because um, it's read by millions of people, very well-known, classic party that gets together and goes and does stuff. Um, and the same thing with the any of the series that did really well. But somebody, I read something that kind of changed my mind a little bit. I, and I think this is this is more like how Hollywood thinks. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this is just they're throwing this out there to see how people react to it. I think if it's immensely popular, you'll eventually see that stuff because they don't want to. This could be just a one shot movie. That they, I mean, I'm sure they have sequels planned if it takes off. But if it doesn't. Okay, so it was a one-shot cool movie. I don't think they want to get just like, okay, we're going to commit to doing three Dragonlance movies or five Dragonlance movies or three Driss movies, and the first one bombs. Because this is Hollywood. They're cost-averse. And and they don't know. I mean, there's a lot of talk. I don't, I don't know if you remember this back in the late 90s. There was talk on the on the um, Lord of the Rings trilogy. They weren't 100% sure. Um, there's talk that, you know, well... Is this really going to be this? That uh, they had arguments. Peter Jackson had gigantic arguments in the studios about that. They wanted to. Could we just wrap this up in one movie? No, we can't wrap it up in one movie. You know, well, because but what if it fails? They're like, well, you're just going to have to deal with it. And luckily, it was a massive, massive hit. And I think that that colors a lot of their thinking. Uh, I don't know if you heard the story of Dune. Dune, Dune is um, they just started filming on Dune two within the last week. Yeah. What does that tell you? That tells you they didn't know it was going to be Dune two. Mm-hmm. Because if they knew there was going to be a Dune tune, they would have already started filming a year ago. This this thing has been in the can forever. It's right. been in the can for what two years? Yeah, right. I th- something mm-hmm. like that. So they were absolutely waiting to see if this would do well on the screen before they even green lighted a, a Dune two. Mm-hmm. I, I think if the D movie does with what well, I don't know what the parameters are, I have no clue what their parameters are. If it does pretty good, 
I think you have a chance of seeing stuff like a Drift story or a Dragonlance story. Because that's where they'll decide, okay, I think we can make a trilogy now. Or I think we can commit to a movie with possibly sequels because this did so well. Hmm. Um, Hollywood is cost adverse to a fault. They they will not invest money in anything they think is you know just not going to blow up. Right. Um, I, I think that you, you might still see that. It's just going to take take Danny to be fairly successful, I think. Hmm. And then, so right, built-in audience, a huge built-in audience, gigantic. I mean, gigantic built-in audience. Um, uh, yes, Drist is has dark skin. That's a that's a tough one nowadays. Uh, you're gonna have to. I, my thing is always, but just to give them blue skin. Yeah, because, make them purple. Uh, yeah, give them a different different. You know, d- just get rid of the black skin, make them purple. Boom, you're, I think you're okay. But um, yeah, built-in audience for those things, people that have. I remember one of the one of the funniest stories, a long story, but I'll just cut to the end of it. I was um, on a blind date with a girl, and it wasn't going too great, and we had to go to her apartment to pick up something, and we walk in, she's got all these Dragonlance posters on the wall. So, <laughs> we're in the Dragonlance, and the rest of the date went great, because we <laughs> nice. found something. I mean, she had, she there was nothing about her that screamed, I like fantasy comics, this and that. I can't even remember why I was dating, why I went out with her. And it's just like, oh god, this date's terrible, oh horrible. And once, once the Dragonlance posters it went, oh my god, everything was great. Hmm. You know, do you play D and D? Oh my gosh, I never have, but I want to. And you know, just so, yeah, those those things resonate beyond the hobby. You know, stuff like Dragonlance or Drift. So, um, that that might be the way to go in the future if you're following a game plan. Hmm. And then to answer uh, one of the other points that Mark made in chat here, and you mentioned Dune already. I think Dune is the way forward because Dune showed that a blockbuster fantasy or sci-fi movie can have the big CGI, it can have a grand scale, it can be, you know, a big show-stopping movie, but it can also take itself seriously and have mature characters, have mature conversations, there doesn't have to be jokes every five minutes, you can have kind of these, you know, big opulent productions with all the, you know, crazy CGI and battle scenes and big, big, big. But you can also have these uh, intimate character moments where, you know, people are, are saying and doing thought-provoking things. And you see the same thing in, uh, not, not as thought-provoking in The Batman, but it's a similar feel where you have that big-budget uh, production but you you also have a somberness and a seriousness. Everything feels like it has weight. And that's the that's yeah. been the problem with all of these uh, Marvel movies recently. And what I think the D&D problem, or the D&D movie is going to run into, none of it feels like it matters. None of it feels like there's any stakes to it. None of it, there, there's nothing to, to really bite into. Dune had that, and I think that other big budget movies are going to have to learn that lesson from Dune that you can take yourself seriously. You can slow the pace down a little bit and you can still have a successful movie. Right. I, I think a lot of that's also, so I remember when the first guardians of the galaxy movie came out before I knew anything, I thought it was going to be terrible because <laughs> to me, the original guardians of the galaxy, the guardians of the galaxy, that's the one back in the sixties and seventies and eighties, not the, the Star-Lord, whatever. Right. And so I'm sitting there going, this is going to be an absolute disaster. What did they do? They said, okay, this is ridiculous. There's a talking raccoon. There's a tree, this and that. You have to do this 
not serious. We can't, I mean, we can have serious stuff in there, but the whole concept is ridiculous. I thought they did a great job with, with blending both of those. Now, the thing about the D&D movie is, D&D is a concept, I know people are going to hate to hear this, it's inherently ridiculous. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a bunch of seasoned warriors going into a tomb and fighting a demo lich or a lich, that's not ridiculous. The problem is, if you make a movie about that, everybody's going to tune out, because it's just not, it, it, it's, too many ridiculous things in D&D to make it not ridiculous. The spells are ridiculous. The monsters are ridiculous. The situations you're in are ridiculous. I mean, everything about it has a... You're trying to keep a straight face, but then you're saying, okay, my elven bard uh, plays a tune to, to calm the the, uh, the bear that's trying to eat my my flying pegasus. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Okay, how are you going to... You know, can't play that serious on screen it's gonna be goofball and a lot of the serious and i'll get there's another example a lot of seriousness of the drist trilogy is based on the fact that um though and if you haven't read the trilogy it really starts it's really not about drist at the beginning and and it's about salvador Wolf. had to change his whole yeah salvador had to change his whole concept because everybody loved drist more than they love wolfgar but it's about drist being accepted in the outside world because nobody likes him and wolfgar being a barbarian being accepted so it's all about there's there's a deeper theme there right and the same thing with dragonlance you know yes you know the the um the kender's ridiculous and there's there's funny parts in it but it's all about look this world's lost its magic there's some really serious stakes we have to work with um but there's still a certain area of you know ridiculous in that the dd movie I think it's going to have... I think you're right, though. It can't be Thor Love and Thunder, which, what I've heard from people, is just ludicrous. The whole movie is just a big joke, and which is a disservice to the character of Thor and Marvel movies as a whole. You, you have to, you're you going to have to be a little serious in there. I saw some stuff in the trailer I thought looked pretty cool. looked pretty, pretty badass. Like, okay, this guy looks like this is a bad villain, or this this is a really you know bad spot here. Um, if they keep that, I think they're okay, but they, they're going to have to balance it. They're not going to have, I mean, it's an inherently ridiculous proposition, but you can help it out by making it somewhat serious. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, D&D's r- ridiculous, but if your bad guy is, and I, I think, look at the Stranger Things uh, series. It, it's that The Stranger Things series is great because it, it focuses on the 80s, and the 80s, I'm sorry, I live through the 80s, it's inherently ridiculous. <laughs> it was. The 80s yeah. was ridiculous. Well, like, we used to, we used to when I was in the 80s, we used to bag on the 70s. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> disco, and this and that. Well, now everybody bags in the 80s, and we'll bag on the 90s eventually, if we're not already bagging on the 90s. But, you know, it, it takes this ridiculous concept, and it it has serious stakes. I mean, people die in Stranger Things that are main characters, and and the monsters are really horrific. And so it does a really great job of balancing that. You know, this is silly, but also there's some really serious stakes here. Uh, I think it, we're left to see what happens with the Dini movie if they're going to actually be able to balance that out. Hmm. Absolutely, and you know, at this point, that's just all of this came down to my perception. And, and really, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. But based on what I saw, I, I think uh, fantasy is in for a bit of a, a beating as far as uh, public consciousness goes. Uh, but with that said, I do need to ask you at least a couple questions about North Texas. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's go. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Too. I mean, I'm enjoying talking about this, but yeah, we probably should cover North Texas because mm. I'm... Um, one of the uh, guys that puts on North Texas RPG Con. This will be our fifteenth year coming up. Uh, I'm assisted, ably assisted by Gary Oliver and um, 
uh, Doug Ray's son, David. Uh, Doug, unfortunately, passed away last year, and so we've taken over the mantle. We had our first con without Doug last year in 2021. Uh, he got sick about a week before the con and couldn't attend, and then this year was all us, 2020. And you said you went 2021, right, Ryan? Yes, I did. That was my first so, time. So, um, I... We didn't know what we were doing. I think we did okay, though. Um, everybody says they had a great time. You and guys then did this great. year, thank you. I appreciate it. This year went even better. It was really better. So um, we're looking forward to next year coming up our fifteenth fifteenth uh, annual con. So, and, and what I would like to do at some point, uh, I definitely want to bring you back on. But I, I think I want to bring you on with Gary to do just a whole thing on North Texas. See if we can arrange that sometime. Uh, like right before North Texas, or that might be, oh, you guys might be in crunch time at that point, but sometime close to the con, I, I want to bring you guys back on to talk about it. Um, I have almost a year. I mean, it's, it's not till the first week of June, so we've, we've got a long time. We're, we're okay. We're, we're way ahead of the game right now, so we're, that's cool. But, uh, you know, what? one thing I do want to uh, give you the opportunity to do, I talk about North Texas all the time. A bunch of my guests talk about it all the time. Uh, tell everyone out there, all the boneheads that enjoy this show who haven't been to North Texas or don't know about North Texas, uh, what is the appeal? What's the hook? Why should people come to North Texas RPG convention? We st- so we're, we're probably one of the only conventions in the United States that focuses on old school role playing. Uh, there's some cons that have it part of the con, like Gary Con and... Uh, game hall but they don't that's not their focus this is our focus and um our focus started out being games pre-2000 role-playing games and we've expanded since then we we do have a lot of 5e and we have some other other games post 2000 mostly retro clone type games like osce or sword of wizardry um I think we're their only real convention that's just concentrated on old school role playing. You are definitely going to get old school role playing if you come to North Texas. Uh, we have a lot of the original creators of the game: uh, Tim Cass, Steve Winter, Alan Hammock. I mean, n- names you've heard, you've read on your your old D and D modules. Uh, those guys all come. We also have a lot of the a lot of the uh, OSR guys come, like Matt Finch. Um, and we have some of the newer guys come that write old school stuff like Skeeter Green and Levi Combs, people like that. So we're very geared towards old school. We we have a cap at 500 attendees because we never wanted to get that big. Um, we wanted to have a small school feel. Um, one of the dirty secrets about running cons is you have to make money. It's like anything else. And you don't really make money to get about 1,000 people. Um, you figure everybody's paying 80 bucks to get in, 1,000 people. You just made $80,000. Okay, that's not to sneeze at. I mean, right, that's pretty good. Um, we don't do that good because we don't we don't care about having that big a con. We don't care about making money. If we care about making money, we'd have a lot more people there. Um, so it's really, really very intimate. There's only 500 people there. All the guests mingle. There's no VIPs. There's no VIGs. There's no platinum, silver, diamond badges. It's all just gamers come to game. And all the guys that... We have a lot of the... Um, special guests will join in games. Uh, Dennis Astaire hasn't been for a couple years, but he loves to play in games. He's the co-creator of Bunnies and Burrows. Carl Otis, who hasn't been in a couple years, loves to play. He he plays in games every session the, the convention. He's, just, he's a huge gamer. Steve Winter will jump in games. All these guys will jump in games, and that's always really cool. But there's no barriers between them and the fan. You just go there, and these guys are hanging out at the exact same place as you are. 
Um, so it's just really a very laid back. Um, it's affordable. It's in a good spot in DFW, uh, right outside DFW Airport. So it's really easy to get to. Um, uh, just, just a, it's just a great experience for my people rave about it because they're not used to conventions like that. These are the kind of conventions you used to go to in the '80s. You go to a convention, there'd be about 500 people there. Um, you'd all just sit around and play games. It was just like just hanging out, and that's kind of how this convention is. It's a very big throwback, to the kind of conventions that Doug and I loved in the '80s and '90s. Hmm. Absolutely, and for someone like myself, who I run a lot of games. I don't get to play a lot of games. Uh, it, it's a great opportunity to to go and just play games for a weekend. And I do run games. I'm not... Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, but he, he found out that I was only running one session. And he accused me of being a freeloader. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm running a game. I'm running a game, dude. I'm not one of those people. I... I, I will run games uh, in, in North Texas. So you'll get to game with me uh, in 2023 when, when I return to North Texas. But it, it really is just a great opportunity to, you know, roll some dice. And if you want to roll some dice, uh, you can do it to your heart's content. You can do it more than you even uh, actually wanted to do if you overbook yourself. No agen- we, we, don't, we, don't have no, we don't have any agendas. We don't really have any things going on it's just yeah you literally just come and game that's all it boils down to we even have a uh the wednesday night before the con starts we have a pre-con get it on where you can show up without a ticket and we just have every kind of game there we have board games we have just people pulling out games and running games at tables it's just there to like hey if you want to hang out and run games i I had a there was a couple that showed up last year just for that just wanted to hang out they're like well we don't know if we want to pay 80 or 90 bucks for a ticket i'm like just come wednesday they did they had a blast um, you know, and maybe we'll come next year. That's all. Okay, that's cool. Come next year, then. That's great. That, just tell people how much fun you had. And um, We don't do a lot of advertising for the con because, really, it's mostly word of mouth. And as Gary said in the chat there, it's like a family reunion. Everybody know everybody knows each other. It, I always say that if you like to go to GaryCon, which I, I enjoy to Gary. GaryCon, I haven't been in a few years. Um, it's like if you went to GaryCon and you pulled out the 500 people that you liked the best and left the other 2,000 there, that's what this con's like. It, it's it, you know it, it doesn't have all the it's the kind of I don't know I don't know how to put this the agenda people is that make any sense at all yes. I, I don't know it, it's it's just it's just people cut like you said people want a game mm-hmm. and they like they love old school games and we have some people there that just they just come and run five e you know they they run five e we have a we have a few people now that just come and run Call of Cthulhu that's all they run they don't run anything but Call of Cthulhu that's fine too we don't care. Oh, I, I, I like mixing people. I, I had a guy come up to my booth once there. I asked him, he was he was young, he was probably younger than you, Ryan, and he was, uh, I asked him what games he's in. He goes, oh, I'm in this game, this guy. I said, I'm in this AD&D game, and this 5D game. I said, well, you know that one game's AD&D, it's not 5D. He goes, yeah, I know. I just want to, and so he, I said something really quick. Cool. He goes, I just want to see what D&D is like on the hard level. Because <laughs> to him, nice. 5e was okay, but it, you know that's easy. He goes, "I want to see like AD." And I looked. He's, and I think it was like Tomb Horrors. Like, yeah, that's the hard level. You're gonna, you're gonna get killed. <laughs> um, so, so, but it's just cool because people come there that want to just experience games that they don't really come in contact with. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, I don't know if you've been noticing, but Ryan, but there's a lot of people nowadays that because 5e's been around for a while, are really interested in experiencing. Um, 
old school games, even yep. though they were raised on 5e, and a lot of them started playing with 3e, which is even more complicated than 5e. I think OSE proves that. I mean, these guys ran a Kickstarter last year, three quarters of a million dollars. That that's not chicken feed for for OSE. That that you know that's basically a BX clone is all it is. Right. Um, in fact, it's the same thing as BX. It's the same damn thing, and they got almost a million dollars. That that's it tells you about a lot of you know how powerful the old school still is and how it's still not um i don't think it's been exploited to its highest level yet i think there's right. a lot of people that would love to play old school mm -hmm. yeah and and as these things kind of drag on as uh you know i, I i'm still kind of sticking by what i said that you know nerd culture as a whole is about to exit the uh the spotlight as it were, people are going to, people who still want that fix, they're going to want to go to the pure sources, the old, uh, original things, the, you know, the old that does not wither, the old that is strong does not wither. They're want to go, go to those things and have kind of that energy imprinted on them and, and, you know, kind of feel the sharp edges of that thing to, to get the, the brand in them very graphic way of saying they want to play old school D and I know, but there's going to be a lot of people seeking this pure experience. And I think what the OSR is going to be able to provide to people in the coming years is a pure gaming experience devoid of all outside nonsense. Just, you know, you are a, uh, like the D the back of the DCC book, you're no hero. You're a cut purse. Uh, you're a sell sword. You know you you are a scrappy underdog, and you're about to embark upon the journey of your life. And that's what old school gaming provides people. Mm -hmm. The chances are high that, that you're going to die, but it'll be one hell of a ride. And their accomplishments at that level are so much better because you're not a superhero. You are a guy that rolled three dice six in order, and your highest ability is a twelve. And yet, when you win, when you win the final battle, like, oh my gosh, just you know, dude number five, did, he killed the lich. I don't know how he did it. This guy sucks, you know. But that's part of the mystique of old school. Is and I'll tell you another thing uh, that our con appeals to a lot of people is because we do have quite a, we have a very large amount of old school guests, and a lot of this was Doug did this very much on purpose. Um, people laugh at us because we have like 30, 30 guests, which we're kind of only 500 people. It's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. People that want to come and they want to play Top Secret with Merle Rasmussen. Yep. They want to play D&D with Tim Cask. They want to play Boot Hill with Steve Winter. They come just specifically to play with the old school creators just to see how they did it back in the day. Um, you can play Boot Hill with anybody, but playing Boot Hill with Alan Hammock or Steve Winter, who were there when the game was created, that's cool because that you know you're it's kind of like this unbroken you know line of descent you know from the original guys, and it's going to suck when those guys are gone, which is another reason why you should attend cons like ours because these guys are not going to be around forever, and, right. and while they're here, it's great to go be able to say you played a game of Buddies and Burrows with. Uh, Dr. Scott Robertson, Dr. Dennis Sestere, the guys who created the game. I mean, they're not going to be here in 20 years. They're not, you know, unless they live to be, unless they're cyborgs and live to be 110. But, uh, you know, and that that's one of the great things about going to an old school convention is to see these guys 
um, and see them while they're still able to get around and run games. Uh, we've had a lot of people say that's specifically why they come to our convention because we have so many old school um, guests. Steve Marsh. I mean, you know, if you if you open a book and see the name Zeb Cook, these guys all come to our con, and, and it just blows people away that they're able. You know, Jeff Easley, um, Darlene. I mean, all these people. It just it's. And if you want to get stuff signed, or you want your kids to meet, you know, I, I, can I tell one quick story? I, I don't yep. know if I've told. I, I think I've told this in Eric's story, but we had one young lady that came this year. And she, and she was uh, drawing in the lobby with Lloyd Metcalf and a few other people. They have they have like a little artist get together. On Thursday, I think it was Thursday night, Friday night. I asked her. I said, "Oh, I have never seen you here before, you know." Um, and we introduced ourselves. I said, "So why are you here?" She goes, "I just want to see Darlene. I am the biggest Darlene fan," which I thought was strange because she's like your age. And I'm like, "Oh wow, you know what about Darlene? So great." So she starts talking. Like, oh my gosh, her map was incredible, and her art style is this. It goes on and on and on. I would just do anything to meet her. I go, "I can make this happen." <laughs> so I walked. Up, I walked over into the restaurant. She was having dinner. Liz Stewart and, and uh, I think Jim Wampler and I said your biggest fan is over here <laughs> I, said, I want you to come over and meet her when you're through at dinner and so I walked back to the girl I said Darlene will be here in about 15 minutes and she's like just like <laughs> couldn't believe it and so she's like oh my god oh my god oh god and so Darlene came over and they talked and Darlene drew her a personal art thing and then flipped it over and wrote some personal words of encouragement on the back. I mean, just the most amazing. Just imagine your idol writing something personalized to you. And it was just the best moment to watch for me because that's exactly why we have the convention. It's for stuff like that. And she was so happy and excited and just brimming with just excitement the rest of the con because she got to meet her hero and, and her hero was everything she you know thought she would be. So that's a big reason for the con, too. It's just for people to meet these people that they have always loved, you know, or loved the art of Jeff Easley or, or Errol Otis or Darlene or loved, you know, the, the, the one of their first modules was something Zeb Cook wrote. Zeb Cook gets a lot of people because Zeb Cook did a lot of uh, Oriental Adventure stuff. He's a huge – actually, Zeb Cook's a big Asian – History fan and stuff. He gets all these people always ask about Oriental Adventures. You know, I don't know if you ever thought that would be what he'd be famous for because he's done so much stuff. But people just go, I want to know all about. And he he's run an Oriental Adventure a few times, uh, AD and D style at the con. But uh, it's just really great to see that. See people that finally get to meet their heroes or meet people you know growing up they always heard about, and especially when they're not jerks too, when they're nice people. So absolutely. Well, and most of them are nice people. We haven't. I don't think we've had a, a jerk really the whole time we've had a con. So it's, it's, we've been very. I, I've I've done comic book conventions. There's actually a lot of jerks at comic book conventions. Yep. Um, but not no gaming conventions. They're they're all pretty nice. But I think because they don't feel comic book guys feel a little more entitled. I think. But we're running some huge jerks at comic book conventions. Mm-hmm. Chris Claremont. Oh, but, um, ooh, spicy. <laughs> other than that, uh, get, no, the game guys are great. They're all very just. They're just happy to be there. You know. I, I think the closest you'll get to like a John Byrne experience, and you mentioned this uh, a couple streams ago, is if you catch Tim Cask at the wrong moment. 
<laughs> now, I, I'll, I'll say I love John Byrne. I've met him, gosh, I've probably met that guy five or six times. I've loved him every time because he has no filter. That dude will, if he, what he doesn't like about comics, he will let you know. I, I like that. Then Tim Cask is very much the same yeah. about D&D. Not really a big filter. So I, a lot of people don't like John Byrne. I, I love the guy because he is absolutely just... Yeah, this sucks in comics. This writer sucks. He'll tell you the writer that sucks. Like, okay, well, that's interesting. Or this artist sucks. Or this sucks. And he'll he'll let you know. So I've, I'm actually a big John Byrne fan. Now, I haven't seen I love him John like Byrne. Years. I don't know how crotchety he's gotten in the last 20 years. So, But in the 80s and 90s, oh, my gosh, I saw that guy everywhere. Um, yeah, I, boy, I could tell, we could swap, swap stories about I, – I used to work at the comic shop in the 90s and I, or 80s, I mean. I met Walt Simonson, Craig Russell, John Byrne, Frank Miller. Oh, oh my Frank gosh, Miller. Terry Austin. I mean, I, a lot of those guys. Every guy was nice. Uh, the nicest guy ever was Dave Cockrum. Uh, most absolute sweetheart guy I ever met in comics. Um, he was doing a sketch of Magneto for me um, one day, and he couldn't. He didn't finish by the last day. And he said, are you going to be at the con tomorrow? I said, yeah. He goes, I will finish this sketch tonight and give it to you tomorrow. And honestly, I thought I just lost my money. I thought he's he's not going to give it to me. And he came back next day with this sketch, like full page <laughs> Magneto, that like, I mean, it pro, you know, that it would look like it could be on the page of a comic book. It was that hmm. good. So the guy was just after that. I was a huge Dave Cochran fan. So okay. most of those guys are really nice, but boy, oh, a lot of the modern guys, no. Hmm. And they started they started reading their press clippings. All the image guys and yep. those guys, yeah, they thanks. Gaming guys are nice, though. Old old school gaming guys always uh, never had a problem. Always nice guys. All right. Well, well, Mike, unfortunately, we've run up against my time here. Um, it, it's well, been gosh, great. Two hours, oh, two hours with, with Eric. Two hours with Eric feels like a marathon. This was wonderful, <laughs> Ryan. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm always looking at my watch with Eric like, oh, my God. Is he going to stop? But no, this is this was great. I, I thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'll tell you what. If you ever want me to speed up talking crit, just invite me on the show. And <laughs> that is, you know what, you are on because uh, we we could talk about really cool stuff instead of whatever Eric wants to talk about. <laughs> Boring. No, I'm just kidding. I love Eric. Eric's, Eric's awesome. Eric we have is a great awesome. show. Talking crit Wednesday nights YouTube. Uh, we we've done it for it'll be almost two years now. We haven't missed a day. So I'm. Um, it, it, we have a great time. We talk about current events and gaming. So, uh, uh check it out. It's a uh, uh, eight central, uh, look under tank cars, tavern or talking grid on YouTube. Absolutely. And then I don't know if Gary is still in chat here, but our, uh, signups live at this point. What is this? Is this a breaking news story? Gary it's probably went to pee or something. <laughs> um, I was told by Mr. Gary Oliver on my phone not too long ago that there might be a surprise in a couple hours. So uh, he had said he was going to get it up by August 1st. And looking at my calendar, it says August 1st. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, tabletop events may have something you might want to check tonight or tomorrow and check it out. Uh, we may or may not have a Mr. Gary Oliver as a guest on our show, Talking Crit, this Wednesday. Uh, all, all depending on whether or not he got the signups. <laughs> if he got the signups, he's going to be the guest of the show. If not, screw him. He's out. So, I, but no, we we, we tabletop events. Um, check check it out in a few a couple hours. Give him a couple hours, or go tomorrow morning. Uh, look under North Texas RPG Con or NT RPG Con and see if there's something there. 
be some early signups with some with a discount. We always give discounts. Signups. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for Rolling Bones tonight. Thank you so much for joining me uh, here on YouTube, my new home for everything. Uh, audio people, you know, you're still getting the show like normal. Um, next week, I don't know what we're going to be doing. I'm going to be reaching out to some people. I will tell you that uh, for the rest of August, I've had a couple conversations with Levi about coming back on. He just launched a Kickstarter. Um, I believe One-Eyed Chungus is the name of it, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... Levi's uh, awesome, too. Levi's great. Great guy. Oh, great guy. Le- Levi is one of my favorite people of all time. And uh, I've also been talking with Bill Barsh about getting him and Ben on the show. Hopefully we can make that happen this month. Uh, I just need to talk to uh, Ben's hairdresser and uh, make sure yeah. that we're all... We're all good there. And and see if he also takes on other clients, like maybe myself. You, Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not... A, now that I'm looking at you, 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 you're very... Uh, you got some nice hair. You got a lot of beard. Not quite Ben, but you're doing okay. I, I think Who? I think you... You know what? If you had a little schooling, uh, Ben could teach you how to get that thing just a little higher up. And, mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think you'd be okay. Sweet. And it's Big Guy Chungus, not One-Eyed Chungus. Thank you, uh, uh, Paul Catrone, for uh, pointing that out in chat. Big Eye Chungus is uh, Levi's new uh, Kickstarter, which is going to be live for, I believe, the better part of a month. So jump on that. You guys know that we're big Planet X fans here. Uh, and hopefully we'll have Levi on uh, sometime later this month. Uh, But until next time, guys, thank you so much for joining me. And whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard. And I will see you guys on the other side. Have a good night.